0: Blog Talk Radio
1: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Green Tree Python Radio, Green, t- Green Tree Python Keeper Radio. Mistake already. Um, I'm here with Bill Stagel, and that was some pretty rock music, uh, and it's appropriate because we have a rock star, a Condra rock star with us tonight. We have Mr. Trooper Walsh in studio with Bill and I. Um, Bill and I have kind of had to get some extra funds available for all the secu- additional security measures we needed to have uh, trooper come in. Um, Bill and I had to get here a day early um, and a few hours well. before showtime, security arrived, uh, had to clear the studio. Uh, we were allowed back in. And then about an hour ago, this big long limo pulls up, uh, escorted by police and Mr. Trooper Walsh was brought in studio. So he was here with us. Right now, safe and secure. How you doing, hey, Will? Buddy,
2: what'd you I'm doing great. Uh, what do you think about Trooper's G5? I mean, that is a nice plane.
1: Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Just,
2: just gorgeous. So, uh, out the <laughs> definitely. <laughs> definitely. What's
1: going on down in Texas?
2: And it's hot. Just uh, I think you guys are are starting to experience some of the summer heat. It was 95 here today, and it felt every bit of it.
1: Nice. Nice. I like summertime, so I I will not complain. A wise person once told me, you'll never have to shovel shovel heat and humidity off of your driveway, (laughs) which I have found to be true so far.
2: Very wise words. And uh, obviously, uh, living here in Texas, I'm much more... uh, likely and enjoy the heat other than the winters that you guys have to, to go through so so it is right. all good
3: gotcha well, buddy, so know, uh, we want
2: uh, to... yeah, go ahead after you Bill I was just going to say I know we want to uh, discuss a couple of things but we want to get Trooper on here as soon as possible we've got two hours of uh, air time and uh, I know the audience wants to be listening to, to Trooper before we get started, I just want to remind the audience that if they're listening live, the show is going to go for two hours, but it will continue to record if we run over that time and they can listen to the remainder of the show. Uh, I think it will be posted tomorrow on Blog Talk Radio.
1: Correct. Correct. So no, the first thing we wanted to uh, talk about was to... Uh, Say congrats to Mr. Marshall Mendez. Uh, he provided the opening song you listened listen to uh, at the beginning of the show, and Marshall hatched out another albino chondro.
0: So congratulations, go, Marshall. Marshall.
1: Strong. So we're happy. Yeah,
2: he, he couldn't post that enough all over uh, the forums and Facebook. I don't blame him. I'd have posted every 15 minutes.
1: Right. Yeah, maybe he should put a live webcam up and we can just watch it.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I'm going I'm to suggest that to him. He'll do it, too. No, you know he will. Good. Yes, he would. Okay.
1: Uh, so congrats, Marshall. Uh, it's a lot of hard work and effort in the, any breeding project. And with chondros, it always seems to take a little bit more effort and uh, stick to itness. And congratulations once again. Um, Bill, have you been on the Morelia Virtus forum lately?
2: I have. Um, There's some good activity. Uh, I think we wanted to go through this, uh, the last show, buddy, and I'm not sure if we got to it or not, but we wanted to give a shout out and give a thanks to um, Matt Morris and David Newman for getting the husbandry guide. Uh, Greg has graciously pinned that to the top of the MDF uh, forum board, and those guys, it's a work in progress. They put a lot of time, a lot of effort, and there's some great information up there, uh, especially for new new keepers that are thinking about getting their first congro, or maybe already have one and are, ha- are having some issues or questions. So, wanted to point that out and thank those guys, in particular.
1: Definitely, it's a huge effort on their behalf. It's when you read through it. I mean, they just didn't take an hour and quickly throw something together. You can just when you read through it, you can tell they've They've taken their time. They've edited. they tried to add different ideas and thoughts. And uh, it's it's really a great place to start if you're thinking about keeping the green tree python or maybe considering doing some breeding. I would definitely get myself over to Morelia Viridis Forum, check out the Husbandry Guide, read through it. It's broken down sectionally, so you don't have to tackle it all at once. You can, you know, read part by part. Um, and, you know, so Matt and David did a really great job over there. And uh, if you're listening and you don't know what Morelli Avirdas Forum is, it's the best Condro Forum on the Internet. Um, a lot of people don't like forums, but if you like Condros, you should go join, become a member, uh, post, and join the Condro community, which I think we're going to talk a little bit about uh, in a few minutes when we get Trooper on here, why it's important to, to uh, be a member of that community.
2: Absolutely. And uh, kind of uh, segue into that, uh, we saw that uh, the administrator for the forum, Greg Schroeder, has um, recently, I guess, reacquired some condros. And for us new people like me, uh, I don't personally know Greg, but I know that he has put a significant amount of time and energy maintaining that forum. And I didn't even know that until recently – he he wasn't even actively keeping uh, chondros uh, in, in his possession. So maybe you can uh, talk about Greg for a minute uh, if you've if you've uh, had a chance to talk with him or, or know any history about him.
1: I haven't talked to Greg personally. Um, we've we've went back and forth on the Merle of year to swim a few times just with a few different things. Um, he's worked with some lemon tree stuff, I believe, some Dreamline a- animals uh he has an animal called or had an animal called snow cone which was a i believe a womana type and she went through a unique change and she was named snow cone because she turned white um so he's been around he's been around for a while and he started the uh there was a big chondro forum on king snake and a couple of forums were were offshoots of that and uh one of was Greg Maxwell's and the other one was uh, Greg Schroeder's and um, you know Greg Schroeder's is still still going and like Bill had said it uh, shows quite a great amount of dedication to to the hobby that he would actually keep the site going and uh, not even own Condor's. I know that it's not free to host that site and I know he has to keep keep maintaining it and do you know household chores to keep the site running properly and. Um, just a shout out and say thanks to, to Greg for keep to, to give us a place to call home.
2: Yeah, uh, thank you, Greg. For me personally, uh, from the people that are listening to the show and to the people that get on and utilize that forum every day, we we all thank you. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, before we bring Trooper on, before we bring Trooper on, and I want to I want to bring him on as quick as as anybody else wants to hear him. I wanted to just give a shout out to Ryan Young who did the, uh, radio show, uh, Marilia Python radio show last night with Eric and Owen. Uh, buddy, I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to that, but, uh, I have. Ryan did a great, uh, great. He, he, did a great job, uh, very interested, uh, in, in, listening to talk to him, talk about different species that he keeps. And of course, in particular, he spent quite a bit of time with uh, green trees. So he did a good yep. job as a good yep. show.
1: Definitely. He is a snake keeper. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> And it, it comes comes through loud and clear during that interview, and he's got a lot of great information, a lot of good things to say. And um, I would I'd definitely, if you haven't listened to it, take the time and, and listen to Ryan's interview. It's a lot of great information, in particular, with all species, not just uh, Morelia and Chondras. but we could all take some advice once in a while. And he he would be the man to get it from.
2: Yeah, fantastic. All right, do the intro, buddy. I can't wait any longer. I'm just, I'm, I'm just okay, shaking. Okay, well,
1: here we go. Uh, Mr. Trooper Walsh. I'm going to click him on here so he can come on and talk to us. Trooper, welcome to Green Tree Python Keeper Radio.
2: Thank you. Hi, Trooper. Thanks. It's good to have you on.
3: Thanks, Bill. It's good to hear you.
2: I didn't know you were in, in Texas
3: though. So I thought you were sitting there in the studio behind the glass. <laughs> uh,
2: but he doesn't uh, but he doesn't let me in the studio very often. He kind of he keeps yeah. me sheltered down here in down here in the south. Uh-huh. Well good. <laughs> well Charlie has two things. <laughs> yeah, well why well, do trooper? Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Say again? Trooper, how about you, how about you start off with telling us a little bit of history about yourself, how you were introduced to reptiles, and why chondros became an important part of your keeping of snakes.
3: Okay. Uh, I've actually been interested in reptiles in particular since I was uh, two years old. And I have a very vivid memory of... uh, Being with my parents at the National Zoo, it was autumn, and there were leaves all over the place, and there were dozens of adults in front of the bear cage, where at the time for a nickel, you could buy a bunch of peanuts and throw the peanuts out, and, you know, the thing would wave at you. All the adults were looking at that, and I looked down into the leaf pile, and there was a box turtle, and so I kind of, you know, got my hand away from my parents and was down on the ground with this turtle while everyone else was paying attention to this bear. That was probably the beginning of my interest in reptiles. reptile. Uh, I do have to uh, uh, thank both my parents for encouraging me all throughout my, uh, out their lives and, and my, my time with them and, uh, that means everything from my dad bringing home the, my first snake and the, a and the crocodile to my mother putting up with four uh, uh, crocodiles on the stairs going in the basement with a handful of laundry, you know. So uh, <laughs> they put up a lot. And my dad was my ultimate cage builder, you know, well into my teens. Uh, so he was very supportive in, in, in many, many ways. And uh, that's kind of where it all happened. He uh, put me in touch with my dad, that is, put me in touch with the Virginia Herb Society back in the early to mid-60s, and it is there where I had my first publication, which was on the birthing of an annulated boa. I think it was published in 66 or 67, but it was something my dad helped me with, and, and, uh, you know, we did together, and... As much as he wanted me to become a lieutenant general in the Army, little did he know that he was preparing me for a life with reptiles.
2: (laughs) I think that's important Uh, for a lot of uh, myself included, a lot of uh, keepers. They didn't have the parental support. Uh, I know I certainly didn't have support of my parents, you know, when I told them that I wanted to bring reptiles, uh, in particular uh, snakes, into the house as a a young boy, and I – I just I needed to wait until I was older and kind of more on my own before I could really fulfill that. So it's really neat to hear somebody who did have that parental support at a young age.
3: Uh-huh. That's good. Well, I don't think you can start too young with encouraging people uh, with anything, really. But uh, certainly with reptiles, I don't know about chondros, but they can certainly appreciate what they are with the help of uh, some supervision from no- knowledgeable adults. Right. right. Uh, yeah, I agree. Kind of jumping around here, uh, there's an in-between period, I guess, in between my early teens, the late teens, where uh, I, I was the manager of a pet shop that at the time was uh, heavy into reptiles. And I was there that I met a lot of people who had later become very important in my life, like Craig and Fanny Phillips. Craig Phillips was the at the time the director of the National Aquarium here in Washington, but he was also a snake freak he and his wife and uh then with uh, contacts I'd made there uh and with my dad's counter encouragement again, I was able to make uh contacts with the keepers uh they didn't have curators back then the the they had uh that um you know, the people who were into the reptiles at the time, we're talking, you know, the early to mid-60s here. And uh, I very quickly found out that even the people that were supposed to know everything really didn't know a whole lot about reptiles. And these were adults. And to me, this was sort of, it stunned me because uh, I, I, I'm i Rounded a of an incident I had when I was a, uh, living in Panama as a child, and I found a, an 8-foot boa constrictor, and I thought it was really cool. However, the MPs that were brought over didn't think so, and uh, the animal was, uh, it was probably dispatched. I was told it wasn't. But when I talked to people, my father included, about, hey, what was that? And, you know, tell me all about it and stuff. What I got for an answer was unusual, you know. You don't hear these things from adults. It's like,
2: well, we don't really know a
3: lot about these, and if you see that, you know, stay away from it. Uh, And what I found is something which is common in in everything these days, and that is fear of the unknown, you know. And snakes, it's like uh, in zoos and reptile houses. Most people really don't like reptiles, but... Studies have shown that ninety percent of zoo visitors will visit the reptile house, and that's not because they like them necessarily. It might be because they want to be scared, you know, their pants off, or get their pants off their girlfriends, or whatever. Um, but people are interested in
2: reptiles. That's a fascination, and, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it is. And, and for me, when I found that, when when I hear something like, "I don't know what that's about," or "You can't do that," or You know, things of that nature, that's what turns my clicker on. And uh, this includes my work with Condros. When there's not an answer to something, I I look to find answers. And, you know, I'm not always right. Uh, I'm oftentimes wrong. And I make a lot of mistakes. And fortunately, I actually learned a few things from my mistakes over the years. And, you know, one thing leads to another, whether you're talking – uh, corn snakes, chondros, or Komodo dragons—you um, know—the attitude towards keeping the animals are are really the same in all of them. And for me, it's learning about them, what they're all about, what makes them tick. Uh, reproduction is a sign of success, or uh, you know, a, a captive environment, but it's not the end all. Um, one thing which Uh, I found sort of unique with Condro, Condro Keepers, uh, has to do with uh, record keeping. And that's something that's always been very close to my heart. Uh, You know, starting with keeping information, feed records, sheds, medical, breeding history, that sort of thing. Last time when I started working at the National Zoo in 75, uh, they didn't even keep records like that. And here I've been doing it for, you know, 10 years in my private collection, you know, just this little kid. And that was one of the things I instituted there uh, so that keepers could have information at the tip of their fingers of what happened with this animal last year when it went through this reproductive thing. And uh, it's also something with condos that uh, lent itself to a unique situation, and that has to do with the pedigrees of animals. Well, 30 Absolutely. years ago, we were, we were feeling good about ourselves that we could keep things just alive like condos, most all of which, or all of which were, uh, while caught. But nowadays, you know, there's so much information, and uh, to me, a, a, a case card isn't complete unless it has some kind of a handwritten pedigree on the back. And in some cases with chondros, for me, that means going back 10 generations. And compared to work with other animals, people don't keep this sort of information. And I think it's part of what has interested certain, a certain group of folks within the chondro field, if you will, um, because... Uh, you have to be able to say, I have a, a Marshall Mendez, you know, triple spotted, blah, 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 whatever, you know. And it's, it's cool to compare notes. Uh, and as a serious breeder, it can be at times critical. You know, there, there are certain traits you don't want to breed for. And, you know, unless you keep accurate records and tell the truth, which includes your failures, uh, you know, that good information isn't going to get passed on.
1: That's interesting to say that Trooper. I know, um, you know, one of the things Bill and I have talked about is that uh, we're everyone's always quick to put up uh, breeding success or uh, you know hatching success, um, but it seems like people are less open to saying I've had a, I've I've did this and it was a mistake um, and. You know, I've, I've seen it myself personally where people have come out and said, you know, I did this and this and this, and this was a huge mistake. And then I guess a lot of people get on this bandwagon of, you know, well, you're not a good snake keeper or you're not a good, you know, whatever you're keeping that you made a mistake with that, uh, you know, anyone who knows what they're doing would never, ever try this or do that. And I I kind of disagree. I think sometimes people, you know, are not purposely making mistakes, but they're trying different things. And because they're trying different things, they make a mistake and they kind of get beat up over it. And, you know, that, that kind of takes away a lot of the spirit of inquiry with keeping these animals.
3: Well, it certainly does. And, it, it, you know, it goes beyond just kind of keeping. That sort of has to do with human nature, I'm afraid. But, uh, you know, everybody you know, likes to hear about the, the good things, but not the bad. And, you know, it's like in zoos, Uh, Everybody gets excited when the baby panda is born. But when a baby panda dies, you don't want to hear that. You don't talk about death. It's one of two things that in American zoos aren't talked about. You know, one is death and the other is poop.
2: What's the other trooper? I didn't hear that. I'm
3: sorry. Poop. Oh, death and poopies. (laughs) I saw a great exhibit in Germany Uh, of a... A poop exhibit it was it was either <laughs> or elephant I think was being uh, offered on that day and it you know talked about all the insects that go into it and, and
2: it was just really cool
3: you know I, you couldn't get away with that here
2: hey trooper uh, kind of along those lines maybe you could uh, tell us tell the viewers I mean what were some of the the mistakes that you made you know uh, you, you've you've given us so much knowledge about the, the right things and how to make these animals thrive, but what were, what were some of the mistakes that you made in the early days when you were experimenting?
3: <laughs> Probably everything I did. Well, uh, yeah, I was at a, at a point in my learning curve where I was learning to apply uh, change with animals that don't necessarily replicate what happened in the wild, but which uh, but but which could in and of themselves cause uh, reproductive activities to to come on. And you know, in particular, I'm thinking about temperature. Um, Thirty years ago, if you talked about cooling down an animal, what that meant in the zoo community was Uh, A fellow named Joe Laszlo, who was at the time the uh, curator at the uh, San Antonio Zoo, his idea of pulling animals down was he – and he was very big into these mountain tree vipers and such. He had one of these uh, six-foot by three-foot by three-foot coat coolers, and he put the animals in there and, you know, cool them (laughs) down for a period. And uh, he was also – uh, instrumental in in getting people to look at lights. So when he started playing with lights, he didn't just add an extra incandescent bulb. He had of uh, twenty or twenty-five four-foot-long, you know, uh, uh, fluorescent plant lights, you know, things like that. He was doing extreme things with these anti- with these animals, which you know, obviously wouldn't be something that. They would encounter in nature, but it caused change to happen and animals that would survive that kind of a treatment um, he actually had some successes with and and at the time people didn't really understand why that was important uh, but there was a lot a lot to be said about what Joe was doing and yeah he killed a lot of animals, but he also uh, is you know infamous for keeping alive all sorts of things that otherwise hadn't been kept well in captivity. So, uh, as for me, and work with chondros, uh, uh, as an example of, of something that I learned uh, my first year of breeding, um, that the importance of having a basking light available for uh, gravid females as opposed to just having uh, a daytime high and a nighttime low, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I remember that my first year I had either two or three, no, one or two females that I bred that year. One was kept without a basking light and the other with, and the one with, the one thermoregulated, you know, it showed its temperature based on the, the temperature of various uh, uh, perches, uh, whereas the other one, which didn't have that, opportunity, it went through the behaviors, and it didn't, in fact, breed, but it didn't produce viable eggs either. So mm-hmm. from that, uh, and some talking to people about that sort of thing, uh, you know, I learned a, a valuable lesson that year. And I think uh, one of the things that I wasn't afraid to do is tell people what I thought I was seeing, which wasn't always correct, but... The feedback I got from people uh, oftentimes helped me to learn, you know, from my own experiences things which I hadn't even seen, you know, and that's that's why that's one of the things that I'm really excited about in general in working with animals and certainly with chondros, in which the sort of thing that you know a bunch of chondro keepers will sit on the back porch drinking beer and you know talk about their their latest. Whatever is going on, you know, it's one of those type things.
2: Now you're talking about about a time trooper, you know, in in the '70s, where that was before there was an internet or email or a lot of the social media that we have available now to share information and ideas, uh, successes and failures. So I'm sure it was very hard to disseminate that, uh, or a lot harder to disseminate that information and that sharing that knowledge.
3: Absolutely, and uh, in fact my first Conroe publication was put out in a was a very new uh privately funded journal um by a fellow named doc parrott uh and the thing that he offered by uh publishing with him was he would uh publish as many colored pictures as i wanted whereas if you go to any of the you know the uh uh, professional, uh, you know, like Herp Review or something like that, professional journals, uh, it costs a lot of money just to put a black and white picture in there. So there were things I wanted shown in color. Uh, and, and and although probably uh, one, one thousandth of the people that would have, uh, into reptiles at the time, would have seen that uh, journal, the people who are interested in chondros always seem to find a copy of it somewhere
2: or another.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Anyway, Amazing how that uh, works. Well, I mean that yeah. was kind of the foundation. That was kind of the foundation of of what we now refer to as the chondro community. And uh, right. today's standards, the chondro community, uh, albeit small compared to then, it, it's massive and it stretches throughout the world. Maybe you could right. share some of your thoughts about you know the, the Condor community about how it was formed and and what what your thoughts are about the people that are have been involved in the past and are, are involved currently with working with Condras
3: Well, one of the things that I've found with what, what I've used the Condra community is that you have a lot of givers in there you know I, I sometimes just break the world down to givers and takers and There's lots of takers, but the people who do all the work, like you guys behind the mic, uh, you know, they're few and far between, you know, but who benefits from it? Lots of people. And, uh, excuse me, I'm in
2: the midst of finishing something here. Um, What were we just talking about again? Sorry about that. (laughs) How great the Condor community is. Oh, yeah. That's great. Uh, at the time,
3: because of the things you mentioned, the lack of the Internet or, you know, a radio or TV show like this, uh, things were, it's like the world. The world in the last 20 or 30 years has gotten very small. You know, you can get on an airplane and then less than 24 hours be anywhere in the world. And uh, interestingly... When Condos first started uh, being bred, and then with some regularity, there was a big focus on the Washington, D.C. area of chondro keepers. You know, not surprising because, you know, I was there as a resource for information, animals, and, uh, you know, that's why today, uh, if you look on the NDS forum, uh, you'll you'll see a lot of the uh Baltimore through Richmond crowd uh right. of people that are condo keepers uh, that has spread out you know um I remember when I was working just you know in our building at the zoo, we had one phone uh which would go long distance and then another one for you know overseas or what have you now all everybody, including the janitor can you know the click of a finger can. Access anything and find what information or tell whatever they think, and uh, that the fact that there were few people keeping condros, focusing on them back then, and the fact that there was so little literature, uh, I can only remember one book uh, that had a photograph of a, a condro and is actually in a large zoo of it, exhibit, but there was nothing on husbandry really. Uh, the first thing I recall seeing was a piece done by Carl Switak in a, uh, I think, a Ranger Rick uh, journal or something. But as you may know, he, he was the first person in this country to actually hatch chondros. But to do that, he went to Irian Jaya and hand-carried back several chondros, which he had hoped to be gravid. And, in fact, one was it laid eggs in the bag on the plane, and oh, he goodness. was able to hatch those animals out. Uh, you know, he didn't learn much from the reproduction aspect except for, you know, he just let the female do what it did best, you know.
0: Yeah. He didn't know yeah. what
3: it was doing necessarily. For instance, he said he kept uh, the ambient temperature at 28, 29 centigrade, uh, which is a good temperature to keep a brooding female, but the temperatures that the females produce, no one would think that they would actually generate heat. And, in fact, uh, in some of the latter work that I've done with condos, I found that, you know, after about age, about day 21, uh, the incubators will start generating their own heat, you know, as much as a degree centigrade above the ambient temperature. I and mean, you have a clutch that's, um, adhere together in a mass, you know, you've got a little generator going there. Throwing,
2: throwing out, nuts. throwing out. Yeah, yep. Did any of those Bad. babies survive? Excuse me? Did any of those babies survive, the initial, Oh, they did. Uh, As a matter of fact, there were 12 hatchlings, and, uh, through a good friend, Louis Porus, I was able
3: to track down a male, uh, which was part of my early collection, and uh, I remember in my second clutch, now this was at the zoo, uh, I had some questions that weren't answered really by Carl Switek's article. So uh, this, is, this is when overseas uh, telephones were starting to become more of a good, you know, normal thing. And I tracked them down in South Africa, of all places, at some snake park. Just ask them a particular question about, uh, you know, female incubation. Um, (laughs) I mean, nowadays we can just do that, you know, with our phones or with a laptop. But, you know, back then, you know, that was a big deal, just making just the fact that we were both at the right places, you know, on the phone to be able to talk, you know, that was a great thing that worked out. But, again, there was just no information. And, when there's no information, for me, I, I like to find answers. You know, I'm, I'm that kind of a guy. I'm kind of nosy, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's asking questions, and questions oftentimes of what you, what you see or you think you see that you learn. And, again, especially if you learn a lot through your failures. Um, so that's why I feel it's important to share information whether it's, uh, you call it good or bad, you know, whether or not you had success in breeding or not. Uh, they're oftentimes just little things that by sharing your story, someone else might pick up and be able to apply to what they're doing and make it work. Let me give you an example of something. This was one of the things I saw you wanted to talk about, having to do it with, with with incubation with conros. Back in the mid to, you know, mid-1980s, Jean uh, Bissette of uh, Gainesville, Florida, and a contemporary of ours who was actually head of the uh, 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 Children's uh, uh, Heart, you know, having to do with, with hearts. You know, he was like the world specialist on, on hearts. So he was interested in, the fact that certain reptiles, starting with Burmese pythons and then he got to me with chondros, could actually generate their own heat, which how does a cold-blooded animal do that? So uh, uh, I was fortunate to be able to work with him. And, you know, for me, he was, he's, he's sort of my godfather of, uh, of many things, not only chondros but some other dragons. Uh, his dad was the governor of the island of Tomoto back in the oh, 60s and 70s, I guess. Uh, it was just a, you know a funny coincidence type thing, but you know we, we were able to share stories about it. Anyway, I'm getting way off track here. Uh, <laughs> it's good stuff. Um, it's good stuff.
2: that's why. That's why you're here, Trooper. That's why you're here. We uh, want to hear these stories. Uh,
3: Well, I I told Buddy earlier that if I start just getting too worried and talking about something, (laughs) it doesn't mean anything just to hit me on the head. I would, but that big security
1: guard next to you might hurt me. (laughs) Say again? I would, but that big security guard standing next to you in the studio might hurt me if I try to touch you.
3: Yeah, right.
0: Okay.
3: Uh, um, uh, Okay. LHS from Europe. Uh, he, he gave us the idea of putting uh, thermocouples inside the coils of brooding female, uh, starting with Burmese pythons, then went to ball pythons, and then to chondros, um, to see if in fact there was this temperature difference, you know, from the ambient to, uh, you know, the clutch itself, and what does it mean when these females are twitching and. In fact, we found several different means of of uh developing heat with uh different species of pythons and I think chondros have you know they're like at the top of the top of the list with that because they generally will uh enve- a female will envelop a clutch of eggs in a coil so that it's you know, like a baseball net and they won't the eggs won't be touching anything except per se and it's, this is something that's never been proven, uh, but it's something I suspect highly. Um, it has been shown that the, the uh, heat sensors on, on green tree pythons, uh, different pits will measure different heat uh, radiance, you know, ultraviolet, whatever. And uh, I believe that a female... You know, you often see these photographs of a beehive, a female on eggs, and a beehive with her head down in the middle of the, the eggs. Well, it's my belief that what the females is doing is that's, that's her thermostat. She's checking the eggs to see, you know, what they're doing. And uh, going back to uh, Van Murop and the work in the mid-'80s, by seeing what the females did and applying that to a captive situation, Uh, we came up with what first was a uh, mimic what a female would do in the wild, although, uh, in fact, it's my belief that you don't need to do that, but the eggs need to be at a certain temperature in order to do what they do best. And, uh, for instance, the females uh, go through a cycle, a 24-hour cycle, where they – are, are doing the shivering bit, you know, generating heat the most. And then they have a rest period where they shiver very infrequently. And, uh, you know, that's kind of their day-night business. Uh, I think Rico Walter was the first seller I've known to keep condor eggs at a one set temperature throughout incubation and, and have good success doing that. And what he did, I believe, is he provided the ambient that was necessary for the eggs to do their work, you know, so right. no, it wasn't exactly what the female did, but it was doing what the female was trying to achieve you so know trooper so when you first you
2: know, trooper, when you first started to try to incubate, then then you would try to vary the the temperature levels based on a certain day or a certain. Cycle try to to try to reproduce what the mother was doing. Is that what you were trying to do? Correct. That's mm-hmm. right. And was it successful?
3: Uh, some were, some were. You know, some you know some clutches are good. Some clutches are you know finicky, what have you. Uh, yeah. It worked well for me, and actually, all the clutches that I've done or essentially have been with that. Although if I were to incubate a clutch today, I'd probably go with uh, Rico's uh, formula for uh, incubation, which, you know, I have to go look at his notes on that because I I don't remember. I want to say that yeah. the acre kept at uh, around eight, maybe you guys can tell me, uh, around 87 uh, Fahrenheit, you know, throughout. And, uh, and even uh, I believe his eggs were separated whenever possible. Uh, and even then, uh, I don't know that he used to a temperature to generator thing to check the eggs themselves. But I'm pretty sure that the eggs by the third or fourth week were generating their own heat. Right, right.
1: Yeah, I've seen. Uh, I've had people tell me that they've done the the straight straight temperature method. Uh, I've heard as low as eighty-six point five. And uh, the higher end seems to be about 88. I personally do 87.8, uh, right. and I know some folks use it a little bit a little bit lower, like 87.5. Um, but it you know it's it's pretty interesting to see how the whole evolution of incubating chondro eggs has has changed. Um, I remember when I was uh, maybe 10 or 12, going down trooper, going down to uh, N Z P. And uh, unlike most folks, I wasn't afraid of reptiles. I wanted to spend all my time in a reptile room anyway, just so I could leave drool marks all over the the outside of the cage, so the janitor would have to come by and clean the cave, the outside of the enclosures later. But I remember you That's guys had a central that was room. me. I was that janitor. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: so, uh, I know what you mean. I remember you guys had like a, a central room, and I remember, I don't know if you actually had eggs incubating at the time, but... Maybe you had like a demonstration, and it was like a big mason jar, um, and it had looked like gravel at the bottom and sphagnum moss on top, and there was like some, uh, I guess, thermocouple probes going into the to the jar. And also noticed uh, when I remember as a child was that the uh, the babies were set up in similar manners. They were kind of like in a mason jar set up with a piece of pathos maybe. Um, and they were, you know, on display inside this, like, se- I guess, if I remember correctly, it was near the center of the building. Um, so when you first started doing artificial incubation, is that the method that you used, the mason jar with the, the pea gravel on top of the
3: sphagnum moss? Uh, ultimately, that's how I hatched out a lot of my babies. At the, my, my first clutch, actually, I hatched out in using a 10-gallon tank, but with the same idea as egg gravel on the bottom water, you know, over that, uh, cups of soil, which, uh, you know, the eggs were sort of settle into. So they had the constant, you know, not only temperature, but humidity going. Uh, in fact, I, I know, the area you're, you're speaking of and at different times it's been used for different things. There, there was a period when, uh, I had at least one clutch hatched on exhibit that way. Um, but then afterwards, you know, I was able to set up uh, dummy replications just to have as, you know, one of the many things to show about reptiles and amphibians in general. And we did that with, uh, we kept our commodity dragon eggs there, and they the public could watch us, you know, weigh and, uh, you know, weekly, you know, check on the different eggs, handling them, et cetera. And yeah, that's kind of cool.
1: Did you, uh, so would you leave the egg mass together for the incubation period and you would not separate them?
3: That would be my preference, but that would depend on uh, so many things, a good clutch versus a bad clutch. You know, if you've got uh, two or three bad eggs in the center of things and they don't dry up properly, which with a female on top of them, interestingly, they probably would, but artificially, oftentimes, they just, you know, mold off and affect all the other eggs around them. So if you see something, if right. you have suspicions, you know, I would I would separate them, uh, especially okay. if you have a large number of eggs. Uh, interestingly, some of the first clutches I ever knew of, including that one by Schweikach, uh, and there was a, a German fellow that hatched out a similar clutch, had a wild-fighted female, and I think they both hatched out uh, 12 babies apiece, you know, and it, and it was, if not 100%, it was a good, good hatch rate. Nowadays, we've got, you know, you hear of clutches of, you know, 20s or nothing, 30s sometimes, and even into the 40s, you know, where, uh, you know, a female, female will produce that many eggs, not necessarily all good, but, you know, a lot more than what we're used to seeing. Right. Right, where you have uh locality specific animals like the murkys, which you know put out a a, lar- a few very large eggs compared to uh, you know ones from other localities where they might produce a whole lot of really small eggs I So, about separating them, it just depends it just depends on the clutch and what you know the eggs are telling you at that time you know and uh right that's
2: I' wonder pretty much see the- Wonder if we're seeing larger clutches in captivity because I think the common consensus is is that the animals that are being kept in captivity are are quite a bit larger than you would find in the wild. I'm just wonder if that's a possibility.
3: I think that's basically it right there. Uh folks that I've talked with that have studied uh chondros in uh Australia as well as southern Indian Jaya. You know, these maruki-type looking animals are, you know, they're not a very big snake. And, uh, you know, a snake, 500 grams is not too small for, as a female, to breed, whereas, you know, we typically think 1,000 grams at least. Um, And I've never seen a larger chondro than one produced in captivity. I've never you know, the largest I've ever seen was maybe, uh, it was under two meters. Um, it was, you know, an old, very old female, uh, which turned out to be the mother of my first clutch, and, in fact, produced 26 eggs, I think. Um, but that was more of the, uh, you know, the rarity than the, the norm. Hmm. So,
1: Interesting. Uh, yeah. So uh, yep. you got your first clutch, and you hatched out your first chondros. Um, how did you go about figuring out how to, how to establish babies? Uh, the hard
3: way?
0: I had <laughs> two tanks
1: set up,
3: and I had one set at i uh, – I'm going from memory, so this isn't correct, but it's just to give you an idea.
0: Uh, let's say it was at uh, uh,
3: 88 maybe. Uh, Fahrenheit. And the other one was a bit warmer. You know, It's something that a Burmese Python could take or a ball Python, You know, like 33, 34 centigrade, uh, you know, 92, 93 Fahrenheit. And uh, all of my hatchings were in the lower temperature. So you talk about learning from failures. Well, uh, there's nobody around to ask what temperature to you know, keep the eggs at. So I didn't put all my eggs in one basket, and I'm glad I didn't. You know, but Uh I lost out the clutch, you know. So is the glass half full or half empty? (laughs) Half full. Agreed.
1: So, so, you know, when they hatched out, um, how did you house the babies, your first clutch of, of chondros? Did you keep them communally? Did you separate them? Did you have a special setup in mind, or did you just kind of, you know, come up with something on the fly?
3: Well, what I did is I initially, uh, I think there were nine or ten babies that came out of that clutch. And uh, initially, before the first set, I I had I had them set up in 10-gallon aquariums, but there were like three or four to a an aquarium. And okay. ultimately, uh uh, it was around that same time that the Sedgwick County Zoo uh, hatched a few baby chondros, not necessarily knowing what they were doing, but they did hatch some. And one yeah. of the things they did is they kept them together, and they had a great photograph of a, uh, one baby chondro that, in fact, swallowed another neonate and, of course, both died. Uh, oh gosh. You know, so that was, a, that was a little ping to go, let's keep them apart, you know. <laughs> um, okay. So ever since then, I've really, you know, whether you're talking about jars, tanks, or what have you, I would, I would, you know, certainly before the first shed, I would separate them out.
1: Okay. Did you, uh, how would you go about starting them feeding? Did you immediately try pink mice, or did you say, I'm going to try, you know, maybe lizards or a frog or something along those lines?
3: Um, I started with thinking uh, mice. Okay I mean it was evident that these animals wanted to eat because they were doing the cuddle luring business, um, sure. although they didn't seem to respond the way you would want them to necessarily and you know there was a lot of trial and error involved always has been but i I've never used uh, I've never used reptiles as a scent item uh trying to get a baby chodry to feed I've used birds and uh, rat, fur, blood and feather, or uh, fur, but uh, no reptiles, okay. and it takes just a lot, I, I can remember with a, with a clutch of 20 babies, say, you know, it could take me six or eight hours to go through an entire, you know, the entire clutch, standing very still a lot, just, you know, waiting for one or two animals to eat each time. You know, so there's just a lot of patience involved and a lot of watching.
1: Right, right, yes, a lot of the patience still today, Trooper. <laughs> it's it, yeah. you know, that that part is, I think, really what, what separates a lot of people. They they get their first clutch of chondros and they they experience a tough clutch, and that really, I think, <laughs> sets the tone for how they how well they. Or how desirable it is for them to produce another clutch of chondros. I think that's uh, that separates a lot of people from wanting uh, well, to breed to keeping just keeping them.
3: Yeah, that 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 brings up a good point. Uh, you know the uh, question of captive bred versus wild caught, farm oh. raised, whatever. And uh, you know I'm a big fan of the saying, you know, you get what you pay for. Uh, Back in, I guess, the early 90s, starting with uh, stuff that Cameron Cappellan was bringing in, uh, we had the luxury of animals that were, in fact, captive bred, Um, but I think even to this day, just because of the ease of uh, doing so, you know, he just goes on the the side of their buildings and catches geckos, and, you know, it's a... Animal won't take a pick right away. He'll just go with that. And right. uh, the nice thing is, yeah, you're getting captive bred, but what are the parasites that are possibly being, you know, passed on from the from the lizard to the snake as little wild caught? Uh, I've had two or three animals that are were, were farm raised that I know of, uh, and in fact. I didn't have very good success with them. Uh, one of them was, in fact, the yearling maruki, uh, and it just it had a parasite load like you wouldn't believe, and they are coming out of its skin, uh, you know. So, to me, it's worth getting an animal that is started on uh, rodents, and that's one of the things that I would choose for if I were picking out babies you know, and wanting to pick up, uh, you know, produce certain traits, you know, strong feeders on rodents would be one, you know, one of the criteria I look for.
2: Yeah, we've talked about this before, Trooper, on uh, a couple of the other shows. That in in this day and time, especially in the United States, there's really no excuse not to buy a captive-bred uh, chondro with with few exceptions. Uh, um, there are experienced keepers that perhaps are looking for new blood or working with a particular uh, exotic uh, chondro species, but for 99% of people that keep chondros, it's certainly the new chondro keepers. There's just no excuse not not to purchase a captive bred chondro from a, a reputable breeder.
3: Yeah, I, I, I agree with you 100% there, and it's uh... – You know, some people just think it's the money, but it really isn't, you know. I mean, uh, you know, I look at it like would you rather spend money, you know, once or twice, you know. The first time when you get one that rolls within a month or so and the guy won't tell you much about the history of it because he doesn't know. uh, Or from somebody that can back up their animals and tell you a little bit about that clutch and things to try with it, Um, you know, there's... uh, there's just no comparison when it comes to that. Uh yeah, there the the captive bred con or the wild that are coming in the country to this day are so so different than what was around thirty and forty years ago. Uh the first five or six condados I saw were just bare boned, uh you know, filled with pseudomonas uh And would only you know if you came alive for a year that was great and uh you know nowadays you you know there there are there are good animals out there i i, I think for a beginner it is in the animal's best interest and the person's best interest to get something that's going to do well for them you know so right. you start with something that isn't so big and fancy maybe, but uh you know learn from that, and then later on if you you know, you want something uh, you know a designer animal or a certain locality type you know you can look for that but learn about how to keep the species first.
1: Right? Absolutely, agreed. So Trooper, I have a question for you. Did you decide you wanted to keep condros prior to actually seeing them in person? Was or was it just based on uh, you know did you see them in person? Say these are some animals I'd like to work with or. Were you reflecting back to your childhood when you saw maybe a picture in a magazine or a or a photograph in a book, and you were like, "Wow, that's a really neat looking snake." At some point in my life, I would like to have them. How did how did that all
3: transpire with you? Well, I've seen a few photographs, uh, many of them cross white acts of chondros, and they were cool. Just like uh, you know, I'm always I've had an interest in. Uh, uh, you know, animal and tree boas and bred them, you know, from around the same time as well. But to me, they just aren't as interesting. Uh, but uh, uh, where was I going with that? Uh, say again what you are just talking about. I distract myself easily. i got a lot of things going on here. Sure.
1: <laughs> no worries. Did, uh, did you, so you decided no, you want to the, it the,
3: the header, I'll pick it up.
1: Okay. You you based your decision to keep chondros based on photographs you had seen or a personal experience that you had actually had?
3: It was actually a personal experience, and I remember the very moment. Uh, It was the first live chondro that I had ever seen. It was in a private collection sitting uh, on the kitchen table of some good friends of mine that, in fact, Uh, They were breeding another species of animals I was interested in at the time. And I saw this animal, and it was like I had never seen a prettier reptile in my entire life. It was probably a uh, three-foot-long, I I guess the the look is the Jayapura look with, you know, a a bright green with, you know, the blue stripes and mid-dorsal diamonds. Is that the right? Yeah, that uh, sounds uh, about right more.
0: Yeah.
3: Okay. Anyways, it just had those markings. And blue in general is a very rare color in reptiles. And just the contrast and the brilliance of the green versus the, the, the blue were, you know, it just knocked me on my feet. And literally within a year, you know, I had a fairly large collection of everything from Indian pythons, which I was breeding at the time, to, you know, rainbow bows, you name it. I either traded or sold off my entire stamp book collection
0: in order to get
3: chondros, you know. And within, within two years, everything was, was chondros. And, uh, uh, you know, I had probably the first uh, chondro-dedicated uh, uh, breeding facility for those animals anywhere in the world at the time. Wow. And, you know, trooper, it's the
2: common, common place, you know, everybody gets rid of their animals and they want to keep chondros. You
0: hear that? I, right?
2: think, I think I think trooper is the first documented case of catching chondro fever. <laughs> you started <at> the physician. <laughs> I gave it to myself. Uh, and actually, the animals gave it to me. So, I mean, that's what
3: it was all about.
1: And is there a cure? <laughs> is there, have you found a cure?
3: No, more so monodrosation, not, no more pill, not, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> for a period of my life, uh, one of the few years where I've never had a chondro in my collection. Uh, I've had some health issues. I just haven't been able to keep them. And, you know, but I do still, I stay, I stay uh, you know, I, I keep my eye on what's, you know, who's doing what and what's being produced. And, gosh, just since the you know, when I was doing some of my first designer animals, the things that are being produced today are just outrageous. You know, especially Great. some of these animals that are like high contrast, black, and whatever, you know. Yep. Uh, you know, I can't yeah. wait to see the first albino uh, chondro that comes from you know, one of these high black or mite phase uh, chondros. I think it's going to be really spectacular.
1: Agreed. Agreed. I think that's the The albino gene mixed in with everything else is going to blow everybody's minds. I think when they see it, and they're going to be eye popping, and it's just going to increase the popularity of of chondros in general. Um, oh, which in is why we're so happy way. for Marshall.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, yeah. If, if you look well, at you know, what Trooper, is half the ball python industry with you know a few morphs and then the you know right. double recessive this that and the other, and look at what's being produced today. Well, we already have designer chondros, and to think of at this point introducing the albino gene to it, it is just going to be outrageous. It really is. And uh, I'm with you uh, uh, in saying attaboy to to Marshall, because I know he's worked really hard to get to where he is, Uh, and what is this, his second year, I guess, he's produced albino chondros? That's correct. Okay, Yeah. Uh, and, and I think it's from some of my bloodlines. They, they all seem to come back to that one Barker clutch, uh, right. including and Uh but Can I you think,
1: share the history think, of that clutch
2: with this trooper,
3: the I, Barker clutch? I can, but I, I just want, I want to ask you guys a question here. I haven't talked Uh-oh. to Marshall in a while. Uh, didn't he okay. produce the first
1: red albino chondro? Uh, I believe, as far as we know, yeah. that is the case. Last year, he hatched a red and yellow, and um, at this year it looks like he's hatched another red. So, red, as far yeah, as we yeah. you know, he oh. is
3: the first one. Uh huh. Yeah, that's something I was really looking forward to seeing. That's you know one of those you know questions. What's it going to look like? You know. So.
2: Have you seen the pictures, Trooper? Have you seen the pictures, Marshall's pictures?
3: Uh, I saw a few from his first clutch when they were first hatched, but I haven't really kept up with, uh, Marshall. We'll, get,
2: we'll get you some pictures of the clutch, uh, that he just, just hatched. He's got a real nice picture that shows, uh, the, the white tongue. It's a red, it's a red Neo. It's got, uh, the, the red tongue and the, and the pink, the pink eyes.
3: Yeah, that's awesome. That's yeah, just awesome. Agreed. Yep. It couldn't happen to a nicer guy. And he's what I would uh say sort of epitomizes the type of person that uh is found within the conjurer community. Uh, you know, whether you're looking at the MVF file or meeting at a uh a, a reptile show or what have you. Um, you know, it, it, folks that, that know Marshall know he tends to be a laid back person. He's very dedicated to what he does. And uh you know, it's uh uh he's the sort of person that, that shares information. You know? Which That's is agreed. one of the things that I think very common within the Condro community, you tend to find more people willing to share information. Uh as opposed to not, and, and actually that includes zoos. You know, there's just so many times I've heard people. You know, I remember that one of the more famous uh, North American zoos hatched out. They had a clutch of uh, emerald tree was born, and I talked to the curator. I said, "Oh, what would you do?" And he, and he he opened up a uh, a, uh, a drawer, and he picked up a uh, piece of uh, uh, newspaper or maybe it was a, uh, a janitor cloth or something where he had written his notes and he said, well, you can read about it when I publish about it. Of course, he never heard anything and I don't think he knew what happened. <laughs> you know, and right. that's so common. It's not, it's not just uh, the zoo, it's, you know, it's just one of those human nature type things. People want to feel important and they oftentimes don't know what they're talking about. And why do you something think that is
1: with the Condor it, community? It, go ahead. Why? Why do you think it's like that with the Condor community? Why? Are, why do you think we're so open and and willing to share, as opposed to maybe having success and keeping that success to ourselves, so only we can can reap the rewards from it?
3: Well, uh, there's probably uh, many different reasons for that. Uh, I would say part of it has to do with uh, uh, information that chondro breeders tend to keep and share, Uh, data cards, for instance, and pedigrees. Those are all something new to the reptile industry. You know, the horse breeders, dog breeders have been doing that sort of thing for years. But it's information which, uh, you know, who would have known 25 years ago that it would be important to know, you know, that a – a particular outcross, uh, you know, of a, a mainland tundra to an island tundra would produce some sort of weird, odd thing. And unless that had been written down somewhere, you know, the next time it happened, no one would know, what, you know what's, it, what's going on. But because it was, and it was passed on, uh, you know, it's something for other people to look forward to themselves. So, you know, I think you'll see most chondro keepers, most serious and certainly serious chondro breeders uh, are good at record keeping. You know, everything, like I said earlier, from feeding to shedding to, you know, breeding, what have you, but especially with the pedigrees because that's something that can't be replicated. You know, once information is gone, it's gone. And you just don't see that with any other species that I'm aware of, Um, you know, unless, you know, you're talking about an SSP stud book for, you know, uh, prehensile-tailed skinks or something, of which, you know, there's maybe 20 in the group. Uh, But with condos, you know, at at this point, I I can't honestly tell you how many condos I've produced thus far in my career, but it's up to or over 1,000. And I'm one person. And if you think of how many people, uh, and I'll throw this out to you guys, how many people would you guess last year hatched chondros in the USA? Hmm. Buddy, you you know
1: better than than Uh, me, hundreds? That's a great question. It's it's one of my projects I'd actually like to work on is kind of figuring out what the numbers are. I would say it's in the hundreds. um that i I
3: know of yeah that i know of. I, i think that's probably a good a good guess and with other species of of reptiles especially ones that have their little tricks that are necessary you just don't see that with any any other group of of uh animals and i think a lot of a lot of uh what you see has to do with, you know, what you see going around, coming back around. Uh you know, I've I've always been free to give out information, whether it's, you know, in a publication or, you know, talking with people, writing, what have you. Back in the days when we used to write letters. Um, and I think it's it, it helps it helps in part I think that attitude helps in part to uh encourage people to deal with these, you know, what historically it's thought to have been a hard-to-keep animal, you know. Here's somebody that's actually done it before, and they're willing to talk to me about it, you know. So there's, you know, that's that's encouragement, you know. You have somebody to go to. And, again, that's something with a, a real dedicated breeder that you'll have that you won't have with the majority of the, uh either wild caught or you know far, captive farm condos that are coming in this country uh right. you know if you get a condo for you know three hundred ninety nine dollars and uh you know it dies two weeks later, you call them up and they say, Gee, I'm sorry to hear that you know uh like right. you're not you're certainly not getting your money back, and they probably couldn't tell you any history on the animal you know right that's something which with condos uh you know, it's a biggie. You know, there's a lot of information. You know, people people certainly have gotten animals from me, and and more often from other people. Uh, when they would contact me with a question about an animal, we're talking about an animal's well-being here. You know, and I, you know, I'm of the mind to to share information. It may not be right, but I'm willing to
2: share it. <laughs> sure well, tr- truthfully, i think a, i think a lot of that i think of what that comes down to in, in the condro community at least the modern day is its tradition you know it was started back yeah. um by you and people like you that that's how condro people did business that's how we do things you know we share information we're open with our success and failure and that tradition is just it's carried on i mean i think that's the reason
3: absolutely and uh you know, it's, you know, I was one person, you know, then there were a few other people that were good at dealing with things, but when you have an, uh, an asset like, uh, you know, Pondro Radio uh, or publications, uh, you know, people will talk to you about things, it uh, makes it worth its while. And I would much rather get an animal from somebody that knew what they were talking about, you know?
1: Agreed. Agreed. I do have to say that uh, Our brothers and sisters on the Carpet Python of the Morelia world Have They've uh, taken a liking to the the Pedigree aspect of the Condor Keepers And it's one of the things they're starting to emulate Is they're starting to provide Pedigrees for their animals For for the same reasons that you would State a troopers that 15-20 years down the road Something very unique pops up Uh, Maybe you can trace or look at that animal's history and say what else out there is related and can we maybe prove it out in a different way? Um, so I have to say that yeah, buddy, it's I'm,
2: just I'm glad species. You brought, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, buddy, because absolutely that's correct. And that's really been over really the last couple of years and, and some of it is the reason that you mentioned um, being able to trace animals back if something crazy pops out. But really the other reason is is that designer animals are being produced in the carpet world just like they are the chondro world. And I say that uh, meaning like not all jungle carpet pythons are, uh, you know, at least phenotypically uh, equal. And if right, you right. breed two, you know, very – very high uh, yellow and and dark jet black animals, well, that heritage, that lineage, just like chondros, it comes back uh, to pay you back in groves with the offspring and future offspring. So we've discovered in the carpet community that it's very important, uh, you know, to to have that lineage, to maintain it, and to track it. Thanks to you guys.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. And as you have the –
3: you know, most everybody has a camera of some type or another, so, you know, you can get
0: pictures of it
3: immediately, you know, and uh, it can be passed around the world in a matter of moments. And, you know, we didn't have that luxury 30, 40 years ago.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. That's right. a great point. Right. So, Trooper, I,
1: I have a, a question to ask, and um, I'm sure a lot of people are, are dying to know the answer to this question. Uh, what is it about red neonates that made you uh, maybe make them the focal point of your later breeding uh, success? Like with the calico, or we know that like, the blue line animals can trace their history back to you, the calico line animals can trace their history back to you, and they all seem to have come from red neonates. What is it about red neonates that made them special to you?
3: Well, it started with the fact that probably the first five clutches that I'm aware of, minus Swytax clutch. He had, you know, mixed yellows and reds. But in terms of captive bred animals, they are all yellow. And I wanted to see what red looks like. And, in fact, I'm just more, you know, I personally happen to like red ones better than yellow. It's just a personal choice, really. Uh, You know, I find them more fascinating when you add in other colors or just, you know, the dark, you know, Black wines or what have you, but
2: uh, yeah, it's just personal choice. Well, I think the choice okay, is. So uh, yeah, I mean it's, but it, it's not your personal choice. It seems just across the community. I mean, if you just looked at uh, just prices of captive bred chondros, you, it's right. very common to see the the red babies uh, being priced higher than the yellows. That's almost universal. Right. Yep.
3: Well. You know, I'm I'm not one to cheat my own horn much, uh, but I think in part because, you know, here I am in Washington, D.C., there's a lot of people who 20 years ago, mostly that had access to me and the things that I thought were cool. And, uh, you know, some things just I happened to hit on them, and other people thought, well, he thinks it's cool, then this must be cool. I think it's a mixture of all those things, you know. And going back to the Condro community, uh, the 1st Condro Chondro-specific event that I'm aware of was uh, what turned out to be called Fest, and it started in my my backyard uh, of a home I had uh, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, where a bunch of condo keepers got together and burned a lot of cow on the grill and drank a lot of beer and talked about condos, you know.
2: And so uh, where was that trooper? Where was that trooper? What, what uh, I was in, in Arlington, Virginia. In Virginia, okay. Yeah, yeah.
3: And then uh, there were a couple of years where I helped uh, Buddy Getzker host uh, what officially came to be known as condo Fest. And, uh, you know, he had resources, I had contacts, and we had a lot of fun. So did a lot of condor people. And, you know, a condor fest is morphed into many different things, you know, depending on who's doing it and, and why. Uh, and, you know, there's no good or bad to it. If it's something that furthers the interest of a specific type of animal to people, then great. You know? I'm not gonna have problems with anybody who thinks yellow chondras are cool, it's just, you know, my personal <laughs>
2: preference is red. And uh, don't, don't, so don't divide uh, the community, let, Trooper. Don't 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 let divide me ask the you community. this
1: question, Trooper. Had your first life yeah. clutches been all red babies, would 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 you have changed your outlook on a yellow baby?
3: I don't know. <laughs> it didn't okay. happen that way. I don't know. <laughs> right, I, okay. We can't rewrite history. Like today, let's just say today I saw my first baby Condros and there are these yellow ones and and some form of a red one. I think the red one would just attract me more. Right.
1: Okay.
2: Troopers are what the, about? the red Neos uh, go ahead, buddy. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. I was just gonna say was the red the red babies, is that where both your both the blue line and the calico line chondros came from initially? Were they working with red neos? Uh, you're asking me a question. I really
3: have to refer to some of those records that I was talking about, but uh, I'm, I'm trying to think here. I believe that there, yeah, there's some definitely uh, the blue, blue line animals were, uh, uh, came from the, the reds. Definitely from, from yeah. a particular
2: blue line, you know, group of blue animals that I was working with. Right, right. What were you going to ask, buddy?
1: Uh, well, that's essentially where I was going, blue line animals. Um, yeah. So, line. Trooper, the, uh, I told you about my experience at the National Zoological Park watching those little baby green tree pythons, and you had to come r- around behind me and clean the glass up. Um, but ironically... <laughs> you're mixed into a story uh, much further down the road. Uh, My first experience with actually seeing captive born and bred chondros in captivity in a private collection was with Tim Morris in the Uh nineties. And uh, so I'm sure you know Tim well. Um, So I go to Tim's place for uh, not a snake function. I think we were going to watch a bike race on TV and he knew I kept snakes and I knew he kept snakes, but I had no idea he had chondros. Of course, you know, Tim. Tim's kind of portrayed as like a chondro specialist, but if you talk to Tim, he'll tell you he, he likes everything, and his collection at that time was as varied as it could be. Um, but I went to his reptile room, and, of course, the first thing I saw were, were the chondros. And, right. you know, talking with Tim about them, of course, where do they come from? And he had told me, you know, this you know this person down at the National Zoo bred them privately, and a lot of my animals have come from him. And uh, so eventually, uh, Tim produced Mr. Blue. Can you maybe give us a little bit of a backstory about how Mr. Blue came into to be in possession with Tim, or how Tim produced him?
3: Yeah, actually, I think it's a story Tim always likes to tell. Um, I hear he's into some other funny kind of snake nowadays, but you know he's still a of guy, Bart. Right, um, right. He purchased. I don't know if it was his first chondro, but it was certainly the first chondro for me. It was a baby at uh, the one of the Florida Herp Expos. And uh, I believe he got, uh, I, he got either a red or a yellow. I don't remember which it was. And his wife at the time wanted – she liked the other one better, and she was mad that Tim got, you know, this <laughs> other one. Uh, and so what ended up happening – is I had a snake that was one of uh, a set of twins. It was like three grams when it hatched. And fortunately, it was a strong eater from the beginning, and it, you know, uh, thrived well. Um, but I still wasn't, you know, after six months, I still wasn't feeling like oh, this is an animal I'd want to sell to somebody. Uh, so as I heard, too, and his wife talking, I said, here, take this one just to, Keep the, you know everybody happy here. So I gave him what turned out the 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 first one he bought was the uh you know his blue female turned out to be his blue female, which was a Tim uh in my partner animal. And then the the male was that little runt, you know one of that with the twin. So uh you know that turned out
2: that was Mister Blue.
3: Yeah, that was uh, that. Those two animals produced Mr. Blue.
2: Right. Oh my god. <laughs> so now not that
1: a The funny thing about wow. that is uh when Tim hatched out the clutch that Mr. Blue came from and I've I've told the story before, but I'll I'll bore everyone else again. Um, I really wanted Condros and Tim was kinda showing me the ropes of Condros and he had hatched out the clutch that Mr. Blue uh eventually came from. And I remember watching Tim establish those chondros, and you talked about the patience of trying to establish chondro babies. That made me take a step back for a while and say, I think I'll wait a little while longer for chondros. Seeing the the babies being established and the amount of effort Tim put into those animals, um, you know, when I still think about it, my heart flutters a little bit. Just seeing Tim (laughs) over those little tubs working those animals, (laughs) <laughs> um, but eventually, I regained my courage and, and, and tried Condros. Good. What about there... the, uh, the? There's a there was another Condor that uh, you produced, and uh, he was purchased by Greg Maxwell, and he was named, I think, initially the Computer Condor, and, and Greg Maxwell used him as a founder for the Calico line animals. Um, Right. Was that, uh, was was that animal an an anomaly or was that, uh, was he on par with the rest of his clutch mates? And, you know, what were your thought process when you're seeing this animal change? Um, you You know, I'm just curious, why would you say, okay, I will make this animal available. Did you have stuff that was much better looking at the time? And this guy was just okay compared to the rest of the clutch mates?
3: No, uh, I believe when I sold that animal it was at least a year and maybe even a two year old, hadn't fully changed but it had uh you know, the definitions of what, you know, now people think of the you know, calico or whatever, you know, the uh 10 different scales in one group being a different color type, you know, thing. Right, uh, right. I don't consider them true calico animals, but that's the man that was attached to them.
2: That was right. that animal
3: was, for me, the first what I would call designer chondro that I ever sold. And it was okay. one of those animals that I brought to a show. Didn't really care to sell, but for X number of dollars, it could be yours. And... Uh, it's sort of a funny story. Back at the time, uh, Greg Maxwell and I, we would do shows together. He was selling cages at the time, and we happened to use the same type of walkie-talkies. And uh, this allowed me to, because I'd seen Greg come by and look at these things. And I, know, I knew very quickly how much he wanted that snake. And uh, <laughs> so I'd get on the on the, uh, you know, the, uh, walkie-talkie and go, Greg... He's looking your way now, and <laughs> by the end of the show, he came over with a fistful of cash, shaking like a you know wet dog, and he had to have that chondro, and that's not uncommon. In fact, uh, uh, it's sort of like you're developing your own market for something. But right. for me, it was all true. You know, you know, I would say things to him on you know on the, on the uh, Walkie-talkie and say, you know, this is the only thing I've ever seen like this, and it it might prove true, you know, who knows? And uh in fact, it did, and Greg was you know did very well with it, and it is a, a more of that it, it showed up in a lot of different collections, but for a long time, you know, the majority of them were from the ones that that uh Greg was working with, and in fact. Uh, There was some, I know there were some of the genetics of that animal were also went into the blue line animals I was working with at the time. You know, there were some of those same animals, you know, not necessarily the blue animals themselves, but the ones that were in that breeding group. Okay.
1: So those blue line, those blue animals you had at the time that you were working with in your collection, uh, were they animals that you had bred that had turned blue, or were these animals that you had acquired through other breeders or maybe hand-selected at, at different shows?
3: Uh, I can answer that one pretty directly. Uh, okay. The founder animals in my collection that started the blues were produced by uh, Al Zulich. I don't know if you okay. fellows know him. He's someone yeah, I don't think he's in so much anymore. Yep. He had on um, loan a blue female from another condo idiot, and uh, he produced maybe two or three clutches with that female, you know, and eventually died. Uh, but it was, you know, with that blue line that I started the work that I did, uh, you know, starting with line breeding and then, you know, bringing in unrelated, you know, bloodlines. And ultimately, you know, what I strove to do and eventually did uh, was produce what I call a super blue. And a super blue condo to me is an animal which comes from a clutch where uh, all of or at least the majority of the animals are either blue or high blue or have some intensity of blue on it. Uh, There's a clutch which many people are familiar with uh, from a snake of mine. Uh, It was was called Carolina. And it produced some of the most outrageous animals I've ever seen, including a red baby that turned completely yellow as an adult. Go figure that one. Wow. Uh, Why do these animals do these things? Who knows? They're condos. They can do what they want. (laughs) They do what they want.
1: Right. Yeah.
3: So, Al Zulek's
1: female. Did do you know where she came from?
3: It was a wild caught animal. Uh, okay. You know, the, I know the fellow that that uh, he got it from, uh, okay. and it was probably just a jobber from Florida. Uh, there have actually been a number of blue chondros brought in from the wild, you know, back in you know the late seventies, but
2: no one really right. did
3: anything with them. Um, I know now that there are. Yeah, you know, other blue chondros, wild-caught animals that have, you know, started up people's groups. And right. uh, there's a form of the Aru type, I believe, that uh, has propensity for blue, you know, the same sort of right. thing. But I wanted to produce a clutch that was p- more predictable so that when you right. got this animal, you know, you could be 99.9% sure that you're going to get a pretty spectacular animal out of it, you know. Okay. It's one thing to produce even two blue cardros together and get a clutch of babies, but unless there's some history to what they are, you really aren't going to have any idea of what it could do. But you know, right. by producing this this particular clutch, uh, um, you know, I, I was able to to do that. You know, the, the ones, okay. you know, animals at six months old would they they'd start turning from red to blue there was none of this red or yellow to green to blue which is very common especially in the uh you know with uh, reproductive females Um, right but to be able to have an animal that you know is you know the, the dominant trait is this blue you know it took a lot of work to get to that point Gotcha.
1: So Al's female. Do you think she was a? You think she was a hormonal blue, re- reproductive blue animal, or do you think that she had morphed blue before she started? Uh, I guess being close to the reproductive age.
3: There's really no way to know. There really yeah.
1: isn't.
3: I, I've of one or two animals that it, you know I got is five foot long green snakes that turned blue and stayed blue. Uh, having nothing to do with other chondro blue chondro lines. Uh, Right, right. Oftentimes you get the hormonal blues and the females will go back to green. You know, well, I want something that's going to stay blue. Right. Do you know what a particular locality?
1: (laughs) I think a lot of people like (laughs) blue, Trooper. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of people like blue. Um, Here is uh, just an offshoot of that. I get a lot of emails from people who – well, send me a picture of a chondro, and they'll ask me, is this a blue-lined chondro? And it, it's blue-lined, L-I-N-E-D. And I guess they mm-hmm. know enough information to know that there's a blue line of chondros, and somewhere they're getting their information uh, mixed up or there's, they're not really clear, but they're showing me a picture of what you, you and I might consider like a Jaapura-type animal or a Sarong-type animal. But as you know, it's a nice green snake with a blue vertebral stripe and, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of patterning. And, you know, I always ask, you know, what is the pedigree of the animal? And they're, you know, they're kind of clueless. Uh, It doesn't have a pedigree. I bought it from a pet shop, you know. And and I ask, what makes them think it's a blue-lined animal? And they say, because the blue line down the back of the snake. So then, Uh you know, we have to go through the educational process of, you know, this is what a blue line chondro is. It's not necessarily a blue lined chondro. So, uh, yeah. just thought I just thought I'd throw that in there because I I I get every other month or so I get an email from someone who's really excited about a chondro they picked up. Um, mm-hmm. So
2: so interesting. So go ahead, Bill. I was going to say that's probably because people are selling them as blue line uh condros on you know uh obviously Could not be. not sites like the m v f but other uh other reptile sites that we've seen people trying to pass along animals that are not truly representative of what they really are right yeah absolutely yeah there's, unfortunately there's
3: uh, there's that you're find out with everything you know yeah and, it's, it's still, it's still uh, happening. That's why I always say, show me the pedigree. You know, people ask me, well, is it a something-line animal, or is it going to look like this? And I say, I don't know. What's the pedigree say? And uh, without that information, uh, just because somebody says it came from an animal related to something of mine, it doesn't mean anything to me.
2: Yep.
3: Right. Right. Going back to something, something it was touched on earlier with the, talking about wild-caught animals versus captive bred, farm bred. I'm not necessarily against, you know, the animals coming from the wild. Uh, I, I think there's always, you know, caveats to that, but uh, the big thing that I have issues over are when people Present an animal and uh, call it something based on, you know, something erroneous, you know, like what you were just right. saying. Um, right. Yeah. If it's a farm-raised animal, call it a farm-raised animal. You know, that's all I'm asking. If it's captive-raised, captive-raised is cool. You know, if it's wild-caught, that's fine, but call it a wild-caught animal. Right. Know? And, you uh, know, Again, it goes back to record keeping. Unless you have at least that kind of information, uh, there's not that much of a story to be able to tell, you know, ten years later.
1: Right, exactly. We've been, uh, you know, and it's, I think that's pretty much the, the consensus throughout the condor community is, you know, be honest when you represent your animals. If it's, you know, if, if it's a wild caught animal, call it a wild caught, and and uh, but you know, unfortunately, trooper, you know, you've been around. You know, longer than I have, and there's people that are always thinking with their, I guess their, their wallet as opposed to, I guess, with uh, some morals, and are you know trying to trying to take the easy way, and and it's easy to misrepresent an animal to those who don't know enough, and uh, you know seem to be, you know, anxious to maybe purchase a chondro, and like like we've always been told, if it's it seems like it's too good of a, a deal, it probably is you know exactly it, it, you know essentially it's exactly. it's it's not a good deal in the long run so
2: mm-hmm. well the other caveat to that is is that because it's now illegal to ship wild caught chondros from Indonesia that a lot of times those wild caught animals are uh, obtained, processed and transported in uh very what would be considered inhumane uh conditions so I mean I think that's something else to, to throw out there as to why you know a farm-raised animal that's coming from a reputable farm you know might be one thing, but a, a wild-caught uh, congro that's put in a Coke bottle and, and and shipped over here illegally you know that's probably another issue. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
3: Uh, Cameron Sipala would be a great person to address that type of an issue. Um, in fact. Uh, There are a lot of uh, jobbers in Indonesia and uh, uh, folks, you know, in the U.S. and Europe who get around the wild-caught, you know, clause by uh, collecting up gravid females and hashing them out, and, you know, that is captive bred. Uh, Right. it, It really isn't, you know, but... Uh, people have been able to get around the, you know, I, I, f- I forget what the quota is. The quota changes from one year to the next for different species of animals in Indonesia. And it might be like 800 chondras can go out of Indonesia to Europe and the U.S. as wild-caught. Uh, but, uh, and I'm just throwing that number out there, you know, as trivia. But, in fact, you know, 3,000 actually wild-caught animals came from animals that were either from these uh, uh, wild-caught gravid females or just young ones that were caught, or in some cases, adult animals with noose marks on their necks I've seen for sale as captive-bred animals. <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> wow.
2: Yep. You know? Yes. Yeah.
3: Yep. You don't see that so much as you did 20, 30, 40 years ago, but, uh, you know, it's just a difference. Shade of, you know, different, different, same problem, different, different means of expressing itself. Yep,
1: exactly, exactly.
3: So, trooper, my my next question
1: for you is: You kept uh, condors at the National Zoological Park, and you kept them at your kept them at your house, or in your, you know, you know, I'm assuming your house. What were the major differences between the two? places as far as husbandry? Were there big differences? Were they kept similarly? Um, or did you have to do things differently at the zoo? That, or maybe you had more freedom at home that you didn't have at the zoo to, to to do things with the animals?
3: Well, my wife really didn't like it when I tried hosing down the floors <laughs> like I did at the zoo. Um, so I wasn't able to do that. But in fact, actually for holding cages, I, I used uh, for many years, and I think, Maybe even still today, they're being used these uh, white food bins, you know, rubber made food bins uh, right. that I first modified. You know, we got them from the uh, commissary at the zoo. You know, you know, we get vegetables in them, and they would find that they weren't getting their plastic bins back. And uh, uh, so I, I started using those rubber made tubs at the zoo, and in fact, you know, it worked there, and. Uh, at the zoo, I was able to keep the animals over water and literally have a hose and just, you know, hose it out, whereas, you know, at home I you know, had to pull over a newspaper and, you know, if I wanted to up the humidity, I just had to either cover it or spray it down heavily or what have you. So, but by and large, a lot of the, you know, the the husbandry was, this, it was similar, you know, but uh, some of the uh, tools were different, that's all. I'd really say on that. There's a hundred million different ways of doing something, you know. Uh, the important right. thing is, does it work? And, and that's, that's an important thing, too, I think. Uh, when developing information and sharing information, the real test of does it really work is when someone else can take your data and duplicate that and do it themselves, then you're on the right track to something. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Well, the other thing that uh, I think is important is that uh, there's more than one way to skin a cat in in keeping these animals. Absolutely. Do you have any
3: knowledge of where the... uh, corn interests are really booming these days? Uh, You know, any of the European folks or, you know, who's doing what out there these days? Um,
1: It's still, you know, my impression is the European market is they're bringing over a lot of uh, high-end designer stuff. Uh, It still seems to be dominated mostly, though, by locality breeding projects. Um, But I do know that uh, there's... I think uh, the guys over at the barn, Sean and Christian Stewart, have sent animals, uh, groups of animals over to Europe. I think Greg Stevens has probably sent some, and um, I think maybe some of Marshall's animals have made it over there. So there is starting yeah, to uh, they're starting to see some interest with the uh, the you know what we we would call the designer lines here in the states, um, and the uh, it seems like here in the states there's been a uh, I guess because of Facebook, there's more interest in, I would say, entry-level green tree pythons than I've probably seen maybe in the past, you know, seven or eight years. And uh, there's a lot of people who are interested in the species who are, you know, feeling comfortable enough, I guess, with their their skills as a keeper to maybe take the leap with, uh, you know, their first chondro. The downside to that is, is that I feel that a lot of folks here in the States, don't really offer too many, uh, what I would call, you know, entry-level chondros. Um, and so a lot of those folks are kind of steered towards uh, what they believe are wild-caught, I'm sorry, what they believe are captive-born-bred animals, which we know a lot of those are wild-caught animals, and, you know, they're not having that great of success with them, or their other option is, you know, they're getting farm-bred stuff from, from Cameron or a couple of the guys who, who buy from Cameron and, and, you know, make sure the animals mm-hmm. are established. So that that seems to be the the general market. It looks like from what I you know what I can see, with the higher end stuff in the in the states, it seems like it's it's still popular and there's still a lot of interest yeah. in it. Seems like a lot of high end animals don't 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 last long on the open market. Um, it seems to be the, yeah, the agree, middle buddy. ground. Yeah, I animals, agree, buddy. Yeah, yep.
2: The middle yeah, ground animals. Yeah, I think the growing. growing. Yeah, yep. So yeah, then. So that's your impression too, Bill? Absolutely. Uh, I know that's the case, at least in in my local area uh, here. You know, the the ball python, uh, I guess craze is is the right word, and and I'm caught up, uh, uh, buddy. You know, I I enjoy, I keep ball pythons. I breed them, and I love them, but I think it's a fairly, uh, I don't know, saturated is the right word. I think a lot of people have kept... Animals like ball pythons for a long time, and and like you said, uh, a lot of people out there are ready to kind of go to the next level and explore and expand their abilities to to keep different animals, and and carpet pythons and chondros are uh, just by design naturally kind of the next step up, uh, and so I, I absolutely think it's it's growing.
3: Yeah, um, one of you guys mentioned a minute ago the. Uh, lack of uh, a beginner type chondras. Um, there, there are some people out there like Eureka Walder is always, uh, he's, he's produced locality type animals or in some cases I know he's gotten young ones from Cameron and he'll clean them up, you know, and, uh, you know, at a year sell them as, as farm raised animals or what have you. But he always seems right. to have on hand at, for instance at the shows uh you know he'll have designers out there but he'll also have some snakes that are going to be four or five hundred dollars you know right which is you know it is comparable to a lot of the farm raised stuff that's out there maybe that's a little high for them i'm not really sure but uh you know yeah. they're, they're out there the big thing is investigate who you're getting them from, you know. It's just like any other uh commodity, you know, whether you're, you know, looking at the uh for a new car or what have you, what's the reputation behind the source, you know? Um what absolutely, do people have to absolutely. say about this particular breeder? Right. Yep.
1: Yeah I I think with the influx of uh you know, well once again we you know, all the tools available to the modern society, the the smartphones and you know Facebook and laptops and people can find animals, but they might not have the uh, I guess I guess what I'm looking for is they may not feel comfortable purchasing an animal because they just may not know that you know hey this person is actually who they say they are and the animals that they have are are truly what they say uh, it is I mean. You know, Trooper, you probably remember, like I do, there was a time when, you know, if you really wanted to go pick out a snake, you actually had to either go to the breeder's house to do it, um, or you had to, you know, go to a reptile show and, you know, find that breeder and hopefully they brought all the animals from a clutch and you, you know, look through each one and you you pick it out. And today, you know, you get, you know, you get flooded with photos of available animals on different sites on Facebook, and so people have these options. And, you know, they, they may not know to ask the, you know, they may not know the questions to ask that lead them to success. You know, mm-hmm. that's hopefully, you know, what we're trying to do with the show is educate those folks. You know, these are, these are the steps you need to take. These are the questions you need to ask. And if they aren't being, you know, answered to your satisfaction, then maybe you need to step back. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of times people get this, they have already decided I'm going to purchase this animal um, they, they, there's almost a, like an emotional attachment to the animal and it, it can be hard to break that. You know, it's hard to yeah. it be hard for people to walk no. away.
2: Well, I think we'd all agree, buddy, that uh, buying a chondro, it shouldn't be an impulse buy. You know, that's the one exactly. thing we tried to educate people. This is not an impulse buy animal. You know, you've got to do your research and, you know, a lot of the onus is on the prospective uh, new keeper. So we're trying to educate. That's what we're trying to do. Yeah, so, Trooper. Yeah. How
1: how have you handled people that have maybe come to you at a reptile show and said, you know, I'm not keeping snakes, or uh, you know, I've just started keeping snakes. Um, I like I like these chondros. I've got the money to pay
3: for them. How do you how do you handle those people? I <laughs> uh, well, I would say one of the things I did is I got together with uh, Rico Walder. Around 2000, and developed the Chondro Coalition, which was, in fact, at that time, and uh, I think it's still alive today in some form or another. Started out as a group of some of the country's top Chondro breeders, and uh, someone like Rico again might have some of these locality types. You know, I don't have locality types, but I've got you know this this particular blue line, you know, black speckled. Uh, designer type, and uh, what we ended up doing is you know, rather than being one another's biggest competitors, we were one another's biggest supporters. In doing so, every year we would bring in one or two new that uh, might be new to the uh, uh, the national, international scene, but they might know of uh, Aretha Walder or Tripper Walsh or what have you. And by association, you know, by uh, being able to sell their animals alongside Rico Walder animals, uh, it gave them a name. And, again, it's part of trying to pass something on. You know, we can't live by, you know, by today. We have to look into the future. You know, we need today new people coming into the industry. And, again, that's true of so many things, but also with green tree pythons. And I think some of the things we've been talking about tonight have been some of the things that people look at uh, when considering a a tree python. For instance, I I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and said, why should I pay $3,000 for this baby chondro when I can go over to that guy's table and for $200 I can get one that looks just like that. And, you know, the guy says it's, you know, farm raised, et cetera. And I said, well, you get what you pay for. And, again, I can't tell you how many people have come back and actually admitted, okay, the animal lasted three weeks and the guy wouldn't, you know, stand up for it. And I said, well, that's what you're paying for when you're getting uh, animals from this particular group of people because we're into, you know, not only uh, the animals, but the people that like the animals as well, and uh, I, was, I was telling this to uh, Buddy a little bit earlier, and uh, it was around 2000 that we had our first Condo Coalition, which at the uh, Florida Expo was a unique thought. Uh, the next year, there were all types of groups of gecko people, and, you know, they had all their little tables together, and and. Wayne Hill himself had his, you know, uh turtle uh pyramids or
0: whatever,
3: you know, <laughs> where a lot of turtle people gathered together and sold their animals. Well that's all fine and dandy, but what they didn't have was the passion and the interest and the information that was being passed on in the condo community, for instance. Uh so those those groups of uh uh, people kind of died off because they couldn't. They couldn't pull it off, you know, because they're, they're still really just looking at it for the money. And you are my biggest, you know you are my competitor, you know, with that mentality. Uh, my the things that make me the happiest are when I can see somebody, you know, working with animals that I have and have success. That gives me great pleasure, and it's been that way in the zoo community, and it's been that way in the private community as well for me. I yeah. can't. Unfortunately, neither of my my kids are into reptiles, but I did make them available to them, and you know, I've just taken the attitude of trying to encourage whatever it is they find to be passionate about in life. Right. Well, that's all you can do as a parent. You
2: bet. Support, yeah,
1: absolutely support their choices as fast as you can. I think we all kind of, at least I know I have, you know, two children here tonight at my house, and, you know, one, my oldest talks about, uh, you know, he's going to move to Australia and and live in the the bush and study snakes and monitors and catch pythons and send me back lots of photos. And, you know, Uh part of me (laughs) hopes he really does that. The other part of me knows how difficult that would be to actually do, but, you know, who am I to, to discourage him? Um, sure. So, you know, you know it's, it's, that, that is, I mean, I, he, I agree. He might, be, he might be the next Daniel Natouche. He might be. Right. You know, trying to still, you know, <laughs> encourage people to, I, I agree with your, your definition of success is, um, you know, having someone do well with one of your animals and maybe even some time down the road, maybe actually you know, producing a clutch of animals from a from a, animals that I produce that I sold to someone that, that I agree that that is what success means to me. Um, and I think a lot of people in the condor community believe that as well. So that's, that's know, not it's, a, it's
2: a ab- unique absolutely thing. Absolutely. The most, the most fulfilling part of, uh, of what I personally, and I think what the vast majority of, of us quote unquote good guys do it uh, it's to see that passion passed on. That's it. Plain and simple.
3: Yeah.
2: I'll give you an example well, of that in this on. new
3: world. Uh, I mentioned, I think I mentioned earlier the uh, Sedgwick County Zoo hatched out I think, three baby chondros around the time of my first personal hatch at home. And, uh, Two of those animals died because one tried to eat the other, and they actually had a photograph of this snake that was half-swallowed, uh, and unfortunately both snakes died. So they were left with this one baby. Well, I ended up getting that baby, and in fact, it, uh, I think it just passed on a year or so ago. It's one of the oldest animals in captivity. Um, wow. And, uh, I had bred it to, I don't know, five or six, seven, I don't know, a number of females over the years, and at some point later on, the Sedgwick County Zoo decided to get some chondros from National Zoo, and I was able to send them back, you know, uh, great-grandchildren of the one animal that they produced that survived, and they were really thrilled about that, you know? And again, without record-keeping, who would have known
2: it? Right, Exactly. Um that, that's incredible. Was was there was that a kind of a competitive thing at the time? Trooper, I mean between your zoo and that zoo? The no. fact that you were able to propagate and, and do well with the species.
3: Well, uh gets into things I don't really <laughs> like to talk a lot about. I will I will say that there were certain individuals that at one of our two zoos who uh, had that view more so than another person did, uh, I found information that I had shared with them, which was not in my first paper, which all of a sudden I saw that information being published in a little article they had on their hatching, which I really don't think they even knew what they did at the time, quite honestly. But that, that's like an old, you know, that's, that's, that was typical, really, of the times you know in, in zoo communities. Anyway, uh, people just weren't into sharing information, and in part because they didn't know what they're doing half the time. But you know, there was a lot of, "Well, I can do this, and no one else can," or you know, and I, that just sickens me to hear things like that. That that's pretty interesting. You know,
1: uh, last year Trooper One. We were all together for ICAST and we had uh, Daniel Natush came up from Australia and he spent some time with us and hung out with us at ICAST and I know uh, talking with, eating dinner one night with Daniel. Hello? With one another in regards to
3: You're breaking up on me here. Hello? I don't know if this is a two-minute warning or what, but I, I can't hear you if you're still talking.